Bible, the book of Revelation. And having finished Proverbs 1 to 9 last week, we want to begin a study on this last book of our Bible. And today we'll just give something of an introduction and we'll loosely cover the first three verses. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Well, as I said, brethren, I hope to come tonight to begin an introduction, uh, an exposition of this book that's obviously going to take us some months, probably a couple years. Now, I trust I need not say that the book of Revelation has been a subject of great debate even among Christians. But I've chosen to largely examine it from a more devotional perspective, leaving the controversy to others to continue. And as I've said this week, we just want to spend a few minutes introducing the book, and there's really already an introduction for us in the first three verses. And I want to suggest to you Seven things about it. Seven things about the book of Revelation. First of all, notice its date. Now, many of the New Testament books and some of the old, with regards to the date, it's not really all that significant. There's more significance, though, attached to determining the date of this book than most other books. And uh, the most common date is a mid-90s date. Some would go as early as mid-60s. So if you read the commentators, you're going to get arguments for an early date, which is mid-60s, a later date, which is mid-90s. For our purposes, there's no real major concern either way. Um, Depends, depending on how one interprets the book, those dates do have significance. Um, there's some Christians who would see that the book of Revelation is largely speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in AD 70, and thus they would take the earlier date. And then there's the majority of commentators and Christians who take the later date and see that, that the book was written in the mid-90s, well after Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. And again, as I've said, it really doesn't make a big difference from the, uh, with regards to the way in which we'll be interpreting it. If the, if the temple in Jerusalem is still standing when John writes it, or I personally believe it's already destroyed some 20 years earlier, Either way, it's not going to make any major difference. And we'll come back to that here in a moment. <clears throat> so secondly, notice its purpose. Though the date of Revelation has been debated, 
the fundamental purpose of the book hasn't. Simply put, the book of Revelation was written to encourage persecuted Christians that Christ is victorious. That's the purpose of the book. And uh, frankly put, it's tragic that few Christians know that. And when you come to the book of Revelation, failing to understand its fundamental purpose, you come up with all manner of fanciful interpretations. Uh, The worst version of that, brethren, just to be frank, is the dispensational version of Revelation, where everything from chapter 4 onward hasn't happened yet. I just don't see how the book would be in any way an encouragement to first century persecuted Christians. You have to remember, as we'll see the audience here in a minute, it has a historical context. And the context of Revelation is persecution. Christians are suffering under, largely under the Roman Caesars. And depending upon if it's in the 60s or 90s, which Roman Caesar, but nevertheless... They are being persecuted. And so God gives to John, his servant, who's exiled, this grand vision, or these grand visions, to remind suffering and persecuted Christians that Jesus has already defeated their enemies, and he's reigning on the throne at the right hand of his father, and he will come back, and he will judge their enemies. So the purpose of the book is to encourage persecuted and suffering Christians. This is why the book was written. And this is why, furthermore, the enemy of God's people in the book is often described as Rome. And the reason why the enemy of God is often described as Rome is because Rome was persecuting the church when John wrote the book. Now, we're also going to see that at times the enemy is described as Babylon, and the reason why is because it's intended to be a comfort for all of God's people, not just the first and second century church persecuted by Rome, but the third, fourth, fifth 21st century church, the church that's being persecuted today in China. Some of you might know that, that the Presbyterian church is uh, suffering greatly at the hands of godless men in China. Well, it's not a big comfort to Chinese Christians that Rome is going to be destroyed, but it is that Babylon is going to be destroyed because Babylon is this world. Uh, This world is God's enemy. And God's people, irrespective of where or when they live, can be and should be encouraged by John's book of Revelation. William Hendrickson put it like this. In the main, the purpose of the book of Revelation is to comfort the militant church in its struggle against the forces of evil. In the main, the purpose of this book is to encourage, to strengthen and encourage the militant church. That is the church in the world, the church that's militant, that's fighting the good fight. To bring encouragement to the militant church 
that its victory is certain. All right, that's the purpose. And then if that's the purpose, then thirdly, its theme is rather evidently Jesus Christ. The theme of the book is Christ as the glorious lamb who sits as sovereign over the nations of the world. Now, brother, we understand that the scope of Scripture is Christ. Genesis to Revelation. And in that sense, we can say the whole Bible is about Jesus. But I want to suggest to you, if I can... There's no book in the whole Bible more about Jesus than the last one. It is in every way a Christ-centered book, and therein lies again the problem with reference to many modern interpretations of the book. We don't understand the purpose of the book, and we don't understand the theme of the book. Now, Christ is everywhere in the book, as we're going to, well, as we're going to see even tonight. But especially he's depicted as a king, as a lamb, and as a warrior, a victorious warrior. Now, whenever he's described as a lamb, he's always described as the one that was slain, but now reigns. And that's just a beautiful way to say that he's the one who's provided salvation for his people. And now he sits over them and rules them. And if he's ruling them, then brethren, he of necessity is protecting them. And you find that right here in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. God gave the revelation to Christ. So this is, this is a God book. So when we, when we speak about Christ-centered books and theology and sermons, we're not saying Christ-centered at the expense of God. We're saying that this book is Christ-centered in that it reveals God. It's a book about God in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and we learn that, don't we, even from the beginning of the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that preposition of can mean one of two things. It can mean it's the revelation from Christ. And that fits the context, doesn't it? It's a revelation that comes from Jesus, given to him by his father, and entrusted or revealed to John. Or, we could translate it, the revelation about Jesus Christ. That comes to John from Christ, and both fit. The from fits the verse, and the about fits the whole book. It's the revelation about Jesus Christ. It's the revelation that comes from Christ, and it's a revelation about Christ. Thus, while Christ is in some sense the theme of the entire Bible... He is uniquely the focus of these 22 chapters. Now, let me give you some testimony to back that up. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. Revelation is a book about the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. There it is. Revelation is a book about the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. Riddlebarger says something very similar. 
The book of Revelation is one of the most Christ-centered in the New Testament scriptures. And Joe Beakey said this, Revelation tells us that Jesus Christ, as the Lamb of God, is seated on the throne of heaven. He is the theme of the book as the one revealed. Christ is the theme of the book as the one revealed. So we've seen its date, we've seen its purpose. Its date is either earlier or older, either way fits for us at this point. Its purpose is to encourage persecuted Christians. Its theme is Christ, it's God in Jesus Christ. Fourthly, its audience. Now the audience is identified in verse 4, but the audience is also identified back in the first three verses. In verse 4, you have John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, you know that Asia here is modern-day Turkey. And there were more than seven churches in Asia when John wrote the book. He selects seven because, as we're going to see here in a minute, seven is a very important number for the book of the Revelation. In fact, we could even say the book of Revelation is a book of sevens. Sevens are everywhere. And you know that the, the biblical, the, usually the Bible uses the number seven to denote completeness, completeness or perfection. So Jesus Christ had John to write down these seven letters to seven churches in Asia as a representation of the church militant in every age. The seven churches of the book of Revelation are not seven dispensations of the church. They're a representation of the church in every era. So what we find in the seven churches as we go through them, we're going to find in our church. And we're going to find in every other church from the beginning to the end. But we could even reduce down the audience to a more simple um, identity in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. (laughs) That's who the book's written to. The book is written to the king's servants. Remember, Jesus is depicted as a sovereign king in the book. And if he's the sovereign king, then who are we? His willing bond slaves. We're his servants. So the book is written to the servants of Jehovah, the servants of Christ, the slaves of God, or to the church the seven churches, as representation of every church in every era. And then the most difficult, probably, is the fifth thing I want to talk about, and that is its structure. How is the book of Revelation to be understood in terms of its structure, or perhaps we could even say, how are we to interpret the book? 
How is the book laid out with regards to its structure? What is its basic or fundamental structure? Well, instead of suggesting the three, four, five, or six, or seven major options, I just want to get to the good part and tell you how the book is structured. The book is structured very simply in seven cycles that repeat the time frame from Jesus' first and second comings. Um, Now, again, this fits with the usage of seven. In fact, those seven sections, the whole book can be divided into seven sections, as we'll see in a minute. Each of those have seven something in it. Seven bowls, seven trumpets, for example, seven woes. So what we have in the book of Revelation in terms of structure is seven cycles of seven things. And in each of those seven cycles, we have the same time described. At the beginning of each of those seven cycles, we're going to see Jesus' first coming. At the end of those seven cycles, we see Jesus' second coming. And brethren, it really is just that simple. It really is just that beautiful. And at this point, I want to just, because it's so important, spend a few minutes and just kind of bend the nail back on this point. This understanding of the structure of Revelation does a few things. First of all, It intimates, or it uh, imitates, sorry, it imitates the pattern of Old Testament prophets. So in our Bible reading, uh, we're in Isaiah. And uh, you may have noticed, if you're reading with us through the Old Testament, that there's a lot of repetition. There's, There's prophecies of Jesus coming and the judgment of the world in the beginning of Isaiah, in the middle of Isaiah, and the end of Isaiah. Brethren, we all do know there isn't three first comings and three second comings. We all understand that the prophets were repetitious. They, they told us the same things in cycles. All of them did that. And you find it most beautifully in the, in the bigger prophets because you just see it over and again for chapters and for chapters. Isaiah, for example... Ezekiel, Jeremiah, particularly. So what, and this is a prophecy. John is a prophet. And thus John is just doing what the Old Testament prophets did, told the same thing in cycles. Same truth, he recycled the same truth. He believed in recycling. The prophets recycled. Uh, Mr. Carpenter likes that, I'm sure. Secondly, it provides, this, this view provides equal benefit for every generation. So the book of Revelation is helpful to the first century church. It's also helpful for the third century church, and the 12th century church, and the 21st century church. These seven cycles repeat the themes 
of judgment and salvation over and over again. And doesn't that harmonize with what we're seeing in the Old Testament? Isn't that what the Bible does? Well, if that's what the Old Testament does, the Old Testament prophets, if that's what the Old Testament prophets did, then that's what the New Testament prophet John did. He just gave the same truth over and over again. Listen to what Machen said in, in reference to this point. In reference to the point that to understand the book of Revelation as seven cycles of Jesus' first and second comings has application and benefit relevance to every Christian of every generation. This is what he said. The beast is neither the Roman Catholic Church nor the religion of Muhammad nor the Turkish Empire. You see, Christians who lived under the rule of those always attributed the beast, always understood that the Roman Catholic Church or the false religion of Muhammad or the Turkish Empire was the beast. Now, in a sense, they were right. Because this view is applicable to every age. It was not wrong for the saints in those days. Our, our, our Reformed and Puritan fathers especially to view Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, as the beast. And nor is it wrong for us today to apply that, to understand that the Roman Catholic Church is the beast. And it's not, nor is it wrong for us to understand that Islam is the beast. Nor is it wrong for us to understand that this wicked world is the beast, as we'll see. The point is, is that it's applicable to every, to every era. He says, undoubtedly, it expressed itself in some phases of those institutions. So he says the beast was those three things. But no one of them can be identified with it outright. The beast of the revelation is nothing less than the blatant godless power of worldly empire. However that power might be manifested. This renders the message of permanent value. The beast is not yet dead. His methods are different, but he still oppresses the church. But thirdly, it explains the repetitions of identical numbers, imageries, and events in the book of Revelation. Brethren, this is why the book of Revelation describes, for example, Jesus' second coming and the destruction of the world seven times. For example, let me just quickly survey those seven cycles at the end of each seven and show you that they each end with the destruction of the world. The destruction of the world coupled with the salvation of God's people. Okay, because those go together. So in these seven passages we want to look at, these are the ends of those seven cycles. And they describe either the judgment of the world or the salvation of God's people at Jesus' second coming. Okay? That's my point. So the first of the seven cycles is chapters 1 to 3. Where you find, we could summarize this one as the seven letters. Uh, all, all seven cycles begin with seven something. Because each of the seven cycles have seven of something in them. The first is seven letters. And it ends, of course, at chapter 3. 
And notice verse 21, for example. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I've overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. It ends with Jesus' return and the deliverance of his people and the exaltation of the same. And then the second cycle begins in chapter 4 and ends with chapter 7. Look at verse 17, for example. Or verse 16. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. Uh, Verse 15. They are before the throne of God serving him. And then verse 17. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water, waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, we're going to see that that, is, that that phrase is repeated later in the last cycle. It's really borrowed from one of the prophets. By the way, let me just remind you, we may do this next week when we come down to some more hermeneutical principles with reference to the book of Revelation. But we have to understand the book of Re- Revelation in the... Um, against the backdrop or in the context of Old Testament prophecy. It, it everywhere is leaning on Old Testament prophets. Uh, the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, especially those two books, you'll find at every turn in the book of Revelation. So when you come to these difficult, highly symbolic passages, what do you do? Well, what you ought to do is to go back to the Old Testament where you find that imagery originated. Try to understand it in Ezekiel because it's the identical imagery and meaning. Uh, So you see how chapter 7 ends with Jesus coming back and and wiping away all of our tears and then gathering us uh, to be with him, to worship him for all eternity. Uh, That's the... That, that section right there, chapters 4 to 7, is seven seals. But we'll see that when we get there. There are seven seals that are opened up, and at the, the last seal is the one we just read. Now you've got seven trumpets, beginning at uh, chapter 8 to chapter 11. Look at verse 17 of 11. Uh, you, you go back up, uh, you've you got the seventh trumpet, verse 15, and then you've got the elders... Uh, worshiping God, verse 16, saying, verse 17, we give you thanks, O Lord, God Almighty, the one who is and, and was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, is this talking about a different Second coming and a different judgment and a different salvation? No, brethren. Right? We all believe that there's, there's, um, that there's only going to be, there's only two comings of Jesus. He came once in humility to deal with sin, and he's going to come in glory the second time to deal with sinners. Uh, the next section is probably the most important, and it's right in the middle of it. And that's chapters 12 to 14. And you have um, this tremendous description of God and the dragon and the male child. And uh, notice how it ends in chapter 14, verse 20. 
Um, you can just read the, I mean, uh, the Lord Jesus comes back and um, is uh, bringing judgment. Verse 16, the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. It was a great slaughter, brethren. Jesus came back and destroyed his enemies. Uh, it's really, it's, it's one of the most easiest sections to understand, this, this section. So it, it, in many ways, we're going to allow it to be kind of a uh, interpretive tool to help us understand that which came before and that which follows. Seven bowls is the next section. Uh, chapters 15 and 16. Look at chapter 16, verse 19. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God. Now, that, of course, is the world, to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Wait a minute, Did, didn't he just destroy his enemies already now? Three or four times? How many times does God have to trample his enemies? Brethren, he only has to trample his enemies once. He doesn't trample them seven times. But what John is doing is giving us, from a different vantage point, a description of that seven times. Um, And then uh, every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Verse 21, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. And then chapter 17 to 19, you have seven woes against Babylon, the fall of the great harlot. Look at chapter 19, verse 20. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Brethren, that's the whole world. That's native man. That's not just some people who take the chip, whatever that is. No, this is people who live for the world. The mark of the beast is on their forehead. They think like the beast. It's on their hands because they act like the beast. Everybody not a Christian in this room, everybody who is not a Christian in this state, in this country, in this world, has the mark of the beast. All right? And then these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And then, of course, the final is new heavens and earth, and there's a sevenfold description of the new heavens in chapters 20 to 22. And you know most evidently that uh, this last section ends with heaven and hell. Um, For example, look at chapter 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. And so the book ends with a beautiful description of heaven and hell. And uh, yet that description of heaven and hell or judgment and salvation has already been repeated six times in the book. 
Now let me say that while there's a seven-fold cycle of these events, it's also important to keep in mind that they escalate too. So, okay, so while each of the seven recounts the same time frame, the, uh, the time between Jesus' first and second comings, there's also intensity with reference to each cycle. It's like each cycle is picking up steam, brethren. Um, so there is progression. Okay, don't, we're, uh, we don't negate that. But there's repetitious progression uh, in the book of the Revelation. All right, so that brings us then, um, sixthly, to its author. Uh, let me just back up quickly, though, with reference. I, I just quickly pointed out how judgment and salvation are found in each of the seven, but there are so many things that are similar in each of the seven because each of the seven cycles are telling us of the same events. It's just different. Um, the scripture uses different terms and sometimes varied imageries, but nevertheless, it's telling us the same thing. Jesus comes, and then there's salvation, and then there's God's people being persecuted, and there's Christ keeping them, and then there's Christ coming back for them and judging their enemies. That's the first one. That's the second one, third, fourth, and fifth, and sixth cycle. Cycle. So they're all, brethren, they're all relevant for the church in every age. That's the point here. And what does the church need to know in every age? Not some fanciful man-made interpretation of the book. They need to know Jesus reigns. They need to know that they're bought by the blood of the Lamb. They need to know that they're servants to the Most High God and they have to, by His grace, prove faithful to the end, just like the generation before and just like the generation after. And that's why it's so tragic, brethren, that there's so much confusion, unnecessary, certainly unhelpful confusion about the book. Because we've lost sight of the, other, the basic principles. So when we understand the book like this, in one sense it might not be as fanciful. It may not make for Hollywood. I don't, it, it, it may not sell as many tickets. I don't know. But brethren, it's certainly going to bring more encouragement to the hearts of God's people. And that's the whole point of it. Its author is John. Verse 1 of the first chapter. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. So Jesus is revealing this by way of an angel to John. Now we're going to see in a little bit here, John is at this point exiled to an island. And likely the entirety of the vision comes on the first day of the week. Remember verse 10, he was in the spirit, worshiping by the spirit on the Lord's day. And uh, it was there on the Lord's day that he had this grand vision or visions from Christ by way of an angel. Now if you see the word in verse 1, signified, that's a rather important term. 
It means to reveal or make known by sign or symbol. And uh, that, of course, reminds us that the book is symbolic, highly symbolic. Um, Brethren, it's just absolutely unbelievable the interpretations that people get from some of these highly symbolic passages. Uh, if we just stick to keep our feet on the ground, as it were, um, and, and, then, and then keep our eyes close to the Old Testament prophets and allow the rest of the Bible to interpret these symbolic passages, we're going to find out that they're laden, they're full of great gospel encouragement. They may not satisfy the fancy of unsanctified interpreters, but they... But these symbols will meet the needs um, behind which God gave them, for which God gave them, and that is to encourage his people. The book of Revelation is a book filled with signs and symbols. Here's another point. We live in such a visual age, right? Everybody likes to watch something as opposed to read it. Well, here you go. Here's a. This book is intended, as we're going to see, to, to be read, but it's as you read it, it's also the book that's intended to be seen. It's highly visual. It, it portrays the truth in most beautiful visual ways. It's a highly visual, visual book. And thus it's a book to, that's to be read. And it's a book, as you read it, that's intended to be seen. It is a book that's filled with symbols and then that brings us finally and seventhly and I have to admit I just stretch it to make sure I had seven points to its blessing and brother this is really the main one of the main things well in light of everything else this is what I want to leave you with this book is a blessed book when read believed and obeyed will bring blessing to the church. Look at verse 3. Blessed is he. By the way, this is the first of seven Beatitudes. Blessed statements in the book. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Because remember, not everybody got a copy. <laughs> it wasn't like John sent them to the, to the pastors of the seven churches and told them to copy it somehow and give everybody their own copy. No. Originally, the elder of the church read it and then he passed it on to the other churches to be read. So the bulk of the people, they heard it, right? Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. But look, brethren, the blessing isn't just for those who read and hear. And keep those things which are written in it. In other words is to have a practical, contemporary effect upon our hearts and lives. It's to practically impact our hearts as we hear it, as we read it, hear it, and as we believe it, and as we live in light of it. That's what it says. And keeps those things which are written in it. For the time is near now. This phrase means that um, the events that John is, is describing or will soon describe have application to his generation 
and subsequent generations. Brethren, for the life of me, I, I don't want to be unkind. I just don't get it how so many Christians today believe that we're still waiting for chapter 4 to start. Probably 85% of Christianity today believes that. John didn't. He was of the minority. He believed that what was going to be described was taking place in his day. By the way, the book ends with that same statement in chapter 22, verse 10. The time is near. In other words, he says it on the beginning of it and at the end of the book. Everything that I've just written, okay, go to chapter 22, 10. I've just written all that. It's coming. It's, it's, it's happening. It's not going to happen. It is happening. Christ has come. He has rescued us. And his enemies are against us. But Christ is for us. That phrase necessitates us to understand that John's revelation recounts events that took place in his day. It recounts, the book of Revelation recounts events that take place in our day. And it recounts events that will take place in that day when Christ comes back. And so, God willing, we'll start our journey next week. And we're going to find, brethren, that it just is so amazing. The description that Jesus gives of, him, of himself in chapter 1 is just unbelievably beautiful. And the description that the book gives of the destruction of the world is terrible in the strictest meaning of that term. Well, we want to transition then from our time of devotion to our prayer times. Uh, let me just give you the lineup for this Sunday.